Bhakti Bhakti Vinata Swami Nitinamane Namaste Saraswati Deve Goravani Pacharni Yuvasesis and Nivadi Paskatya De Satani Vande Ham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya it's August 11th, 2021, class in Hawaii over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 27, Text 26. Aho Bajasvamam Bhadra Bajanti me dayam kuru Etavan Porusho Dharmo Yadartana Nukampate Please chant Ato Therefore Bajisva Except Mam me, me, Badra, O gentle one, Bajantim, willing to serve, may, to me, Diam, mercy, Kuru, do. Etavan, such a measure, Porushaha, for any gentleman, Dharma, religious principle, yet that Artan to the distressed, Anukampate is compassionate Srila Prabhupada's purport Kalakanya that's the daughter of time continued O gentle one I am now present before you to serve you please accept me and thus show mercy it is a gentleman's greatest duty to be compassionate upon a person who is distressed Srila Prabhupada's purport. Yavanaraja, the king of the Yavanas, could also refuse to accept Kalakanya, daughter of time, but he considered the request due to the order of Narad Muni. Thus he accepted Kalakanya in a different way. In other words, the injunctions of Narada Muni or the path of devotional service can be accepted by anyone within the three worlds and certainly by the king of the Yavanas. Lord Chaitanya himself requested everyone to preach the cult of bhakti yoga all over the world in every village and town. 
Preachers in the Krishna consciousness movement have actually experienced that even the Yavanas and Malechas have taken to spiritual life on the strength of Narada Muni's Pancharatrikividi. When mankind follows a disciplic succession as recommended by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, everyone throughout the world will benefit. Ato bajasvamam bhadra bhajanti me dayam kuru etavan porushodharmo yad artan anukampate. Kalakan, you continued, O oh, gentle one, I am now present before you to serve you. Please accept me and thus show me mercy. It is a gentleman's greatest duty to be compassionate upon a person who is distressed. Mm. Benefiting the whole world. This is one of the six symptoms of bhakti that it is, that Rupa Goswami explains in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, that it is auspicious for everyone. Mm. Generally, things are not like that. Generally, things are auspicious or good or beneficial for some people at the cost of other people or other living entities. Practically every great civilization, so-called great (laughs) in the history of the world, has been built uh, with the help of slaves or indentured servants or exploitation of some kind of one human group with another human group, exploitation of animals, exploitation of the environment. There's generally like that, just even the equipment that we're using, all the electronic equipment we're using. Uh, We know very well that there are people in other parts of the world who are in in terrible conditions getting the rare metals or uh, putting together the equipment the clothes that we buy very cheaply, uh, that somebody else is suffering. So we're saying, well, I, I got such a great deal. Look, I got this shirt for only $5. And that means that somebody else somewhere is is working in poor conditions. I remember years ago buying a sari in India for the equivalent of US $10, whatever it was at that time, in rupees. And the entire length of the sari five and a half, six meters, was hand embroidered. The whole the whole thing. Now, I'm a slow embroiderer. <laughs> that's that's a, an understatement. And so for me to embroider that much cloth would probably take me a few years. Uh, but let's say an experienced person could do that even, even, let's just say, a week, which to me would be amazing. Maybe they could do it in 40 hours in a week. But still $10. And that $10, it was also going for the shopkeeper. It was going to whoever transported the cloth to the shop. It was going to whoever grew the cotton, harvested the cotton, combed the cotton, spun the cotton, wove the cotton, dyed the cotton, and to the person who did the embroidery. So how much was the person who did the embroidery getting? A dollar? One or two dollars for a week's worth of work? I mean, I can't imagine it took much less than that, even if we were going to say they're some extraordinary person and it took four days still. But, oh, I got a sorry for ten dollars. So that's materialistic life. Materialistic life is we find our happiness at others suffering and of course if I had voluntarily offered to pay the shopkeeper more (laughs) 
then that just would have gone into the pocket of the shopkeeper. So that's material life. Material life is we find our joy at other suffering. And this is part of our it's part of our conventional life and we're so accustomed to it that we don't even perceive it anymore. It's just it's just life, it's just the way things are, and we're not we're not even aware of it. Just like the meat eater it loses awareness that they're what they're eating the the taste that they're enjoying from the food is coming from extreme violence. They know. It's not that they don't know. I mean, who in developed countries today doesn't know? And in more undeveloped countries, you'll actually, you know, you'll see the chickens being slaughtered in front of you at the marketplace. Or they, you know, one theory is that this this pandemic came from what they call a wet market. Wet with what? Wet with blood. (laughs) So people are going there. They're seeing the animals being slaughtered in front of them, and they're seeing them in terrible conditions. But generally, we don't think about it. And then even worse is when we we do actually see the suffering in front of us. So the lowest level, we don't see the suffering. We're, we lose our awareness of it. We, we push it away from our mind, and we simply take our happiness knowing that it's at others' suffering. Now, more evil than that is when I actually enjoy that others are suffering. And of course, this is envy. (laughs) These are all envy, but this is a particularly virulent form of envy when I perceive others suffering and I actively enjoy that. And such a thing goes on, of course, the gossip, all the gossip and the large percentage of the news is of this nature enjoying the suffering of others. Especially reading about, uh, you know, catastrophes and scandals and, you know, one is getting pleasure, uh, especially scandals, one is getting pleasure at the difficulty and the fall down and uh, the troubles of others. And But even catastrophes, one is thinking, well, it's not happening to me, uh, it's happening to someone else. You know, we'll, they'll see, oh, there's this great fire. Uh, but, oh, there's no one that I know that's there. There's this, you know, grease is on fire, but, okay, I'll, it's not hitting anyone that I know. It's not affecting my friends. Right, there's a number of times on social media I've seen people asking questions, do you know anybody with COVID? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what are they thinking if my answer is no? then I'm not going to care. And when it affects people we know, it usually only bothers us if that is going to indirectly affect us. Somebody who provides happiness for me is my family member or my friend or my associate. And when they're sick, then they won't be able to make me happy anymore. So then the worst level is when I actually enjoy being the cause of the other person's unhappiness. I mean, that's happening, of course, with me eating or with my uh, being happy at buying something very cheaply, that I am the cause of the other person's unhappiness. But, of course, uh, that's indirect. But when I'm directly the cause of the other person's happiness, unhappiness. So when I've done something that gets someone into trouble, revenge stories, 
well, somebody's hurt me and now I've done something to hurt them. When I actively try to cause pain for others, you know, when I actively uh, speak badly of others to try to give them a bad name, to try to hurt them, to try to ruin their reputation, uh, to try to ruin their work. And of course, they might have actually done something wrong, um, but in any case, I'm trying to hurt them. You know, all crimes are in this category. So if, you know, I'm stealing from somebody and I'm intentionally causing them, you know, it's one thing to buy something cheaply and the person doesn't get paid much. It's another thing to actively steal their money, to engage in criminal activity. All of uh, sexual crimes are in this category where I'm, I'm getting my pleasure directly from hurting someone or if I'm directly slaughtering animals, we can think about Negrari, uh, but any time that, that I am the source, the direct, voluntary, active source of pain to others. And what's interesting about this is that even then, the conditioned soul doesn't generally recognize that this is what they're doing, that they're doing, uh, engaging in an extreme form of envy, uh, basically because they've pri strongly prioritized some need of theirs. And they're feeling that their need justifies the other's pain. Mm -hmm. um, the other day I was in, uh, there's a group of devotees I'm working with over the internet at this point. And there's one of the members who often would just take over the meeting to air his own grievances about things that were unrelated to what we were doing. And just his grievances with this devotee and that devotee. And it got so extreme the other day, when we only had a half an hour meeting and 15, 20 minutes, he was just going on and on and on and on with his anger and his grievances. And I was the facilitator and I kept saying, you know, this is, this is not the place, this is not the place, it's not what we're discussing. Uh, do you wish to be, do you wish to be part of this group? Do you wish to have this discussion? You know, do you, do you wish to contribute to this group? And finally he just said, well, I'm leaving. <laughs> I was like, okay, good. Uh, but what he didn't understand is he has his own anger. I'm sure he has good reasons for his anger, but he has his own anger and his own frustration and his own pain and his whatever other emotions he's, he's struggling with. And he felt that these emotions justified his destroying the meeting of, of a whole group of other people who were trying to do something. He didn't see that he was stealing. The rapist doesn't see that he's raping. He just sees, I, I want something. I need something. And the other person, they, they have to give it to me. So this is ultimately you know, materialistic consciousness. Whether, whether it's as extreme as you actually break into someone's house and steal their money, or you, you actually rape somebody or kill somebody, uh, or whether it's just at the level of completely disrupting something because you have your own... You have your own issues. Mm -hmm. so, this is the nature of the material world. In one sense, uh, Srila Prabhupada would often define material enjoyment as this. That material enjoyment means that I get my happiness at the suffering of others. We can say that sense gratification is really defined like that. I mean, sense satisfaction doesn't necessarily mean strictly 
a biological uh, happenstance where the physical senses of my body uh, get in touch with their objects. You know, like right now I'm sitting on a chair, so the skin, which is a, a sense organ, is in touch with an object, which is a chair. And I'm definitely feeling physically uh, more comfortable on this chair than I would on a very hard chair or if I just stand or, or something like that. So you could say I'm satisfying the sense of touch. But we don't really mean that when we say sense gratification. We don't mean that one is eating, everybody has to eat, everybody has to breathe. That's not what we mean. What we mean is this concept that I am seeing myself as the enjoyer and other people as enjoyable objects. And I see them as enjoyable objects in an exploitive way. Now, this is, of course, the definition of lust. So uh, that, is, that is how we define material life. Now, how we define spiritual life is exactly the opposite. The way we define spiritual life is compassion. And the English word compassion means to suffer with. In other words, that I actually connect with others. Materialistic life, I don't connect with others. I, I'm the only living being, really, and I exploit others. In, in spiritual life, I connect with others. I feel a oneness with others. And not in a Mayavada sense, but I feel a oneness with others. I feel a connection with others. And I want to see them happy. I want to bring them to joy. Now, it can be a detached way. I want to read news about others' happiness instead of re reading news about others' distress. I want to know about others' happiness. I rejoice in others' happiness. You know, a little deeper, I rejoice if whatever I can enjoy brings more joy to others than it brings to me. As much or more joy to others as it brings to me. And on the highest level, I would want to be the cause of others' happiness. Not in an egoistic way, but I want to be the agent of Krishna for the happiness of others. So this is actual spiritual life. That when, I, when others are happy, I become happy. And I want to take my happiness at others' genuine happiness. I want to bring them to joy. So there's ordinary compassion and then there's real compassion. So ordinary compassion, which is a, a very laudable thing for exploitive, self-centered people, is I want people to have material arrangements that are pleasing. I want them to have sense gratification. So I want my sense gratification, but I also want them to have sense gratification. So I want to arrange for them to have materially pleasant circumstances. Because then, I, in material situation, I'm defining happiness by whether or not the body and the mind are connected with their sense objects. That, that's, how I'm, that's my definition of happiness. It's pleasant weather, there's tasty food to eat, there's congenial family and friends around, there's nice things to wear, there's attractive, comfortable things to wear, there's comfortable furniture to sit on. 
uh, people have uh, romantic partners, that that's, people are safe from thieves and rogues. And This is how I'm defining happiness, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. And therefore, I want to provide that for everyone. That's material compassion. And again, that definitely material compassion, even if it's done in Rajagun or Tamagun, is still superior to materialistic envy. There's no doubt that it's superior, and therefore Krishna says in the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita that if you can't engage in spiritual life in, in any way, shape, or form, then at least give up your possessions, at least give in charity. Help others. As he says, you know, love me. If you can't love me, practice bhakti, do sadhana bhakti, do abhyas yoga. If you can't do that, do Krishna karmani, work for me. If you can't do that, you can meditate, you can cultivate knowledge. But better than that, better than even meditating and cultivate knowledge, is give up your possessions, share, help others. Because even if one's doing that just on a material level, and even if one's doing that for ultimately for the satisfaction of one's ego, which is the case if one is doing it in, in any of the modes, even sattvakun, still, it's pushing a person in the right direction. And the satisfaction that a person feels, even if it's on a false ego level, of working for others' happiness, even if it's superficial happiness, even if it's material happiness, that satisfaction, Prabhupada says, all that you think, well, wow, this is so much more satisfying to give happiness to others than to give distress to others. I wonder what's the best way to do that. And you keep looking for better and better ways to do that. And eventually you may come to the best way of compassion. Now as far as providing other people with the material accoutrements and the material things that they need in life with good eating, sleeping, mating, and defending as Prabhupada likes to put it. So this is also should be done in spiritual life. It's not that we don't care. Just like Srila Prabhupada said that no one should go hungry within 10 miles of, of any of his temples. And he would say that if people are hungry it's very difficult for them to hear philosophy. I mean, we find this on a practical level if you try to give a class in a room that's too hot or too cold. Or, you know, it's very noisy. Or if people can't focus. Or if the people are very tired. Right? Their, their bodily needs <laughs> start screaming at them so loudly. You know, most people can't be like Mars Burkett where he's fasting from food, water, and sleep for a week. And he's just, you know, pibanti. He's drinking the Bhagavatam. And he's just satisfied with the Bhagavatam, you know, the, uh, the residents of Vrindavan under Govardhan Hill who go for seven days without eating or sleeping. I know Kavikanapur says there was a whole, uh, like, heavenly village under the hill. But generally, like the Bhagavatam describes, they weren't eating, sleeping, drinking. They were just looking at Krishna and feeling satisfied looking at Krishna. Uh, but generally speaking... <laughs> Uh, people need these things. This, this, one of the, this fact is one of the reasons why Srila Prabhupada, throughout the Bhagavatam, to a lesser extent the Chaitanya Charitamrita, is 
over and over and over again pushing the concept of Varnashram, engaging people according to their propensities in a proper livelihood so that people are peaceful, people are, are happy. I mean, Varnashram means people are situated in a place where they're happy. They're, they're doing what they love to do. They're doing what naturally connects them with Krishna. They're doing what naturally connects them with the universe. And all of uh, society is prosperous. This morning, we were giving a class virtually in New York about how Lord Ramachandra's kingdom was so opulent. I mean, there were, you know, the seats were made of coral and there were emeralds everywhere and, and real perfume was all over the streets, sprinkled by elephants. <laughs> so the, the devotees also want to make sure that people are properly taken care of. 195 times Srila Prabhupada used the phrase peace and prosperity. And the purposes of ISKCON, he talks about taking care of the, uh, uh, fixing the imbalance of values in society and bringing real peace and unity to the world. So they are concerned with this. But why? They're concerned with this not because they're on the platform of material compassion. And I, I see that this has been a problem among devotees for a long time. You know, the Prabhupada would say, we're not, we're not interested in opening hospitals, for example. That doesn't mean that devotees shouldn't open hospitals. Like we have our Bhaktivedanta Hospital in Mumbai, where all the food is prasadam, where you have Prabhupada's kirtans and lectures playing 24 hours a day if you want to listen to them. You know, there's the doctors and nurses are chanting at the beginning of each shift and, and so forth. So we definitely want Krishna conscious hospitals, we want Krishna conscious schools, we want Krishna conscious legislatures and militaries and businesses and media and all of these things. That's a fact. Uh, but Prabhupada didn't want the ISKCON society. <laughs> the ISKCON society was to teach everyone else to do this, not to do it directly. But Prabhupada wanted it done. He wanted a whole society that was God-conscious. He wanted a whole society that was dedicated to bhakti-yoga. Not just that he'd make a little society that was a, a little shelter in a storm, but to calm the storm for the world. Why? Uh, if he's not on the level of material compassion. As Prabhupada says in the 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says that saintly persons should perform austerity, charity, and uh, yajna. Right? Dhanas, tapas, yajna. And he talks about not only there the Sankirtan yajna, but he talks about the Vivaha yajna. He talks about the marriage ceremony. And he says even a sannyasi should encourage a young man to marry. That it's a, it's a yajna. Hmm? Why? Prabhupada said, to make the mind peaceful. Now, we know that no material arrangements in and of themselves are going to make anyone's mind peaceful. That's, that's not going to happen. Because even if you had the perfect eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, we're, we're spiritual beings. And this is why, you know, Vamandeva says to Bali, Bali says to Vamandeva, you should ask me for something so great, you'll never have to ask anyone else for anything else ever. And Vamandeva says, if I'm not satisfied with three steps of land, I wouldn't be satisfied with the three worlds. Hint, hint, Bali. 
that you'll always be wanting something more. And we find this in life, you know, even if we have everything really nice, we're thinking, ah, but this could be improved, and this could be improved, and this could be improved. We're always, yeah, there's always some level of dissatisfaction. Like, Hiranyakashipu was master of the three worlds, but he was always intoxicated, and he was always yelling at everybody. He wasn't happy. So we're not thinking that we want a nice society, we want Varnashram, and we want peace and prosperity, and we want natural opulences, because we think that will satisfy everyone. If we thought that, then we'd be pushing for Swarga instead of Bhakti. But we're seeing that when these things are there, there's a nice foundation. Then people feel that comfortable enough that they're willing to take up Bhakti, they're not so distracted. You know, I've seen devotees who need to be married and aren't married, and they get to be, you know, in their 30s and 40s even, and they're, it's very hard for them to focus on their bhakti. They're just very focused on how can I find a spouse, how can I find a spouse. Or if somebody's in a terrible marriage. You know, again, it's hard. You, if, they, if they come to you, they very rarely talk about Krishna. They'll be talking about all these other things. You know, how can I get married, or how can I get out of my marriage, or how can I fix my health, or how can, you know, something like that. We have devotees who are going on and on and on for months now, you know, about the pandemic and the vaccine. Before that, people were going on and on and on about politics. And so if people don't feel, if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel taken care of, if they don't feel that their situation is, is okay, basically if they don't feel safe if they just feel that they're constantly being threatened, then they become obsessed with getting rid of this threat, whatever it may be. And their ability to focus on serving Krishna is very small. I mean, it's possible. Krishna, bhakti is a hoitukiya pratita. And ultimately, one has to understand that focus on Krishna is not dependent on how safe or unsafe or comfortable or uncomfortable our material situation is. But for most people until they're at a very higher stage of bhakti, that's a very difficult thing to do. So therefore, devotees who really have no concern with this material illusion do have this concern with having a peaceful society. Now the problem becomes if that's the ultimate, if compassion ends there, if compassion begins there, if compassion begins with making sure that people have, you know, a nice place to sleep and a nice place, to, something nice to eat, and that they're able to get married and that they're able to have a livelihood, uh, they're able to have a shelter. You know, if it begins there, that's fine. It's not that devotees should neglect these things. Uh, years ago, I had some people who were associated with a devotional project that did not want to spend any money at all on the physical care of the other devotees in the project. In fact, there was kind of a, a tension going on between the person who was financing the project and wanted to spend money to make sure that all the devotees had a nice bed and clothing and clean water and, and like that. And the devotee who was actively managing the project who felt that that was all uh, just Maya <laughs> and didn't want to use the money, although the money was being donated for that purpose, they did not want to use the money for that purpose. But if it's the ultimate thing, if that's where we end, if we end 
that compassion means arranging for other people's eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, then it reinforces the idea for people that material happiness is simply the contact of the senses with their objects, including the mind, and that that is happiness. And it reinforces the whole illusion. I mean, it's far, far better than out-and-out envy. It's much more like swarga. You know, I mean, of course, there's some envy also in swarga, but in general, Bhagavatam says people who have lost people who have envy, they don't go to swarga. So to be materially compassionate, to find happiness at the happiness of others, to take care of others, to find, to find our joy in that way, uh, that puts you more like heaven than on what's typical for earth. Guess one's out of the animal mood. Of course, even animals can be materially compassionate. But to end there, it doesn't, you're still an illusion. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work. One hasn't gotten to the root of anything. First of all, one hasn't given anything to satisfy the soul. One is just satisfying the body. The metaphor Srila Prabhupada would often use about the bird in the cage. You know, you're just cleaning the cage. I mean, you're just putting fuel in the car. It's good. You have to put fuel in the car. Unless you want to just walk. Or it's like, like you know, like you're washing your clothes, but you're not taking a bath. But the worst thing is, it it's it's not just that it's not feeding the soul, it's not giving any satisfaction to the soul, but it's also that's a the problem of omission, but of commission. It's communicating that such behavior, if it ends there, is communicating the concept that these things are the be all and end all. They are the goal. That that's that's all you're supposed to achieve. And so it compounds the whole problem. So real spiritual compassion is not that if you could arrange the material energy properly, then you will be happy. So let me try to help arrange the material energy for everybody on the planet so everybody will be happy. Spiritual compassion is let's rearrange our awareness of the material world. Because what's really cool about spiritual awareness is even rearranging your spiritual awareness is that even if things in the material world are not at all conducive and not at all sense-satisfying, one still finds happiness. In fact, one finds happiness in every situation. Therefore, Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita 6.20 that what's indeed happiness from all miseries arising from material contact is to change one's awareness. To change how we see the world, how we perceive the world, how we interpret the world. Now, anyone can understand this even on a material level, and I've told this story before, it's a true story. How this, this woman was constantly upset, and she was spending all day vacuuming her rugs. So her family finally insisted she go to therapy and the therapist said, why do you vacuum all the time? She said, well, I want the rugs to always look fluffy. And whenever anybody walks in the house, their footprints press down the rugs. Of course, we can think about Krishna's footprints pressing down the grass in Vrindavan. Anyway, their footprints press down the rugs, and everything doesn't look perfect anymore. I have to make it look perfect. And if I don't vacuum, then I'm, I'm not a good housekeeper. I'm not taking care of the place. 
So the therapist looked at her and said, the footprints don't mean that people's messing up your rugs. The footprints means that you're loved, that your family is in the house. They're the ornament of the rugs. So she changed how she perceived something. Instead of perceiving that the footprints meant that she was not a good housewife and that people would be dissatisfied with her, she saw the footprints as meaning the people were there around her and they were satisfied with her. Uh, this kind of technique of being grateful, choosing gratitude and choosing joy even materially, you know, it can be like, oh, i got to do the laundry again. Why do I have to do the laundry so often? To, wow, I'm so blessed that I have water. Like yesterday here, we had no water for most of the day. You know, and then you realize, wow, I have water. I was thinking of, you know, I had to, I had to go someplace that had water and carry water in a bucket, <laughs> you know, so that we had water and I was, you know, having to <laughs> portion out the water that I was using for things. And I was thinking, you know, a lot of people live their whole lives like that. They have to carry water on their heads for the whole day. They have to walk. I mean, I have to walk for five minutes each way. Sometimes people are walking for 20 minutes each way to carry their daily portion of water and they have to carry like three pots on their head. That's the water for the day. So, wow, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. Turning our annoyances, turning our uh, grievances to gratitude. I got to walk all the way to the mailbox. Ah, I can walk. I'm so grateful that I can walk. That we change our consciousness, we change our way of viewing things, and we can become happy. We can become happy, practically speaking, in any situation. We can choose to be happy. Now, that's materially speaking. But spiritually speaking, this same principle applies that we can choose to see Krishna in everything. For one who sees me everywhere and sees everything in me, I am never lost to him, whereas he never ever lost to me. And Prabhupada says, I really like to quote this, I know I quote it a lot, that to the materialist everything seems very aggressive, but to the devotee everything is happily situated. And it's not that the devotee is in a different place physically, but they, they see the hand of Krishna there. They see everything as related to Krishna. They see everything as joyful. Bhaktivinoda Thakur writes about this. I can't remember exactly where. But he says that this material world is also Krishna's leela. And in a leela, there's going to be difficulty in any good story. There's going to be you know, threat and fear and doubt. And, you know, we read about all of these emotions in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu as part of bhakti, as part of the the joy of bhakti, the taste of bhakti. And so the it may appear that the devotee is going through the world like the materialist is going through the world, but what's night for the materialist is day for the devotee, and what's night for the devotee is day for the materialist. That the devotee experiences all these emotions and all these circumstances in a transcendental way, far beyond even... Uh, including certainly materialistic gratitude, but far beyond that. There's one essay where Bhakti Samanta talks about going beyond gratitude. 
So this is the real compassion, is to bring people to that. It's good and it's, it's worthy and it should be encouraged to help people find good eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. It should be encouraged on the point of view of a person that it helps that individual who's providing that see that there's something higher than envy and, and harm. It's good for those who are preaching Krishna consciousness to provide people with that, with a foundation for spiritual life. But it's, it's good as a start. As an end, real compassion is to change people's consciousness. Now, of course, this is very difficult. It's not at all easy. That conditioned souls are very, 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 very attached to having a consciousness that incites their misery. They're extremely attached to it. Materialists are just as attached to having a consciousness that makes them miserable as a drug addict or an alcoholic is attached to their drug. And trying to convince people that their happiness is a matter of changing their consciousness more than changing their situation is, is very hard. Uh, people will argue with you ad infinitum that you're just not hearing them and you're just not understanding them and can't you see that really they need this or that change in their environment uh, rather than this or that change in their consciousness. <laughs> and that you're not, you're not dealing with the real problem and you're not really hearing them. Uh, but that is the real problem. And so the devotee has this compassion ultimately. And what's nice about this kind of compassion is it's not dependent on a person's karma. The other is, you know, if you want to give people nice eating, sleeping, mating, and defending and they don't karmically deserve it, it's really can't do it. But you can help people to change their consciousness, even if they don't have a background. They can become, you can make them fortunate. You can be the agent, as Prabhupada would say, I have created your good fortune. You can be the agent of their good fortune. And this is so satisfying. Srila Prabhupada named one devotee Bhavananda. And at one point Prabhupada asked him, do you know what this means? And he says, the bliss of bhava, the bliss of love of God. And Prabhupada says, no means bhava the bliss of coming to this world of birth and death and preaching Krishna consciousness, helping people elevate their consciousness. That it is so satisfying that the residents, the eternal residents of Vrindavan come to the material world. Like we see the six Goswamis, they came. And they're, most of them, they're Manjuri gopis of Srimati Radharani, but they're coming to this world to help people change their consciousness. So this not only, as Prabhupada would quote from uh, Merchant of Venice, mercy is twice blessed. It falleth as a gentle rain from heaven. It blesses he who gives and he who receives. And Krishna says, one who is compassionate like this, one who is preaching the, the, his message, that he is most dear to me. So this is where, this is the ultimate way in which we find our happiness at the happiness of others by giving others spiritual happiness. And this, as Srila Prabhupada points out in this purport, is available to everyone, even the king of the Yavanas. There's, because everyone is a soul. Material compassion will not be effective to people with people who have really bad karma. As we've all seen, we've all tried to help people who don't have the karma to be helped, and it doesn't work. 
right? You give them money and they lose it. You give them gifts and they, they spoil it. It just doesn't work. We've all had this experience. But this spiritual compassion, uh, even if the other person doesn't take it, Krishna becomes very pleased that we're offering it. Of course, we have to offer it appropriately. One should not throw one pearls before swine. But Krishna is very happy that we're that we're that we're making that effort, and therefore we become very happy even if the other person is not able to accept it at all or only partially. So this is the way that we become happy, and it's the way that Krishna becomes happy, and it's the way that we can make uh, the whole universe happy. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions. said uh, I, I missed your point or something but we we know that according to Shastra that the, the natural quality of the soul is that it, it wants to be joyful and you said that um, again I may have missed, missed the point that people are very concerned about wanting to achieve misery or They're as concerned about their misery as they are of their pleasure. But it sounded like you were saying in a positive way, and I may have just misunderstood. It's hard for me to understand what you're asking. Okay. Um, when you were talking, you, you mentioned something about people being concerned about their misery. And I was wondering, was that that they, they wanted misery? As well, people are pe- materialistic people. Pleasure? People in general, materialistic people, are very attached to their materialistic consciousness, although it's a source of misery for them. They don't want to change their materialistic consciousness. I mean, I can give you a very simple example. So uh, there's one devotee who was writing to me to complain about how other devotees were treating her. That was the main thing that she wanted to do. She wanted to complain about other devotees, how they were treating her. Now, I'm not saying her complaints were, were bad or good. I don't know. I wasn't there. So I, I have no idea to what extent what she's telling me is accurate or, or whatever. But I gave her other ways to see the situation so that in spite of the situation, she could be happy. And she would fight me and say, no, I want to see the situation like this. And it's like, but seeing the situation like this makes you miserable. And we, we even tried a little experiment, you know, what happens if you, if you see the situation in this other way? Oh, then I'm happy. What happens if you see it the way you're seeing it now? Then I'm miserable. You know, what happens if you see it this other way? Then I'm happy. So how do you want to see it? I want to see it the way I've been seeing it. And and you try to change it and they don't want to change it. I mean, this happened to me in this meeting uh, yesterday where the devotee just basically commandeered the meeting. He's done this before. It's not the first time. But this time was really extreme. He's done it before. Just to talk about his grievances with the GBC. And none of us in the meeting are the GBC. None of us are on the GBC. We can't do anything about his grievances. And that's not the reason that we were having the meeting. We were having the meeting for a completely different purpose. It wasn't related to that. And, you know, it's, it's like, well, okay, we're, we're having this meeting to try to go forward with this nice project and do something. 
you could focus on that instead of focusing on your anger. And he's like, no, I want to focus on my anger. I, I want to be angry. I want to fall. I mean, he didn't say those words, but you know, that's what he was doing. I, I, this is what I want to do. And not only do I want, not only did he want to do it, he wanted to bring the rest of us along with him. He wanted to, what, I, what, do we, what do we want us to do? All of us to be yelling and screaming like he was about people doing this or that that we couldn't do anything about. So it's... So that sounds a little, from, it sounds a little familiar. Like, yeah. You know, maybe we don't have some of that in Of course we do. Of course we do. So, you know, we're, we're suffering... And we go to someone and say, I'm suffering, please help me. And if the person says, well, you know, they might listen to us for a while and let us vent, like Narada tried to let Daksha vent for a while. And then you say, okay, I, I hear that you're in a difficult situation. Now let's change the way you look at it. Instead of trying to change the situation, which we might not be able to do, let's change the way you look at things. How do you perceive things? And, you know, even if you do that with mundane gratitude, like I'm saying, even if you just see what you're grateful for in the situation, instead of, you know, well, I'm with these devotees who don't treat me nicely, I'm grateful I'm with devotees. I'm grateful I'm not with materialists. <laughs> you know, it's just... And if you do that, that, oh, you're minimizing the problem, you don't care about the problem... No, we care about actually you becoming free. And the, the you know, oh yeah, we do this too. You know, I, I want to see myself as a victim. I, I want to see that, I want to perceive the world, that the world, the world is aggressive, that the world is out to get me. And I'm a good person. And if, if everything would just be done my way, then I would be happy. That's how I want to see the world. Hmm. I don't That's want to see. Point. I don't want to see the world that I'm the perpetrator. You know, I'm the rascal, <laughs> and how kind the Lord is to me. I don't. I don't want to see it that way. So yeah, then we're then we're holding on to the very thing that it's it's exactly exactly like the alcoholic or the drug addict holding on to their the source of their addiction. It's exactly like that. You know, I'm miserable, I'm miserable, please help me, we'll give up your your drug. No. <laughs> yeah. Is that clear? That's very that's really clear. No, I got it now. It was really clear. Theme that uh, Shlomo Shinamaj gave us, that, you know, that Tate, Nikampam Shushmik Shimano, mm. that you're wasting your time if you're blaming things outside of yourself. You have to work on the defect, your defect, you know. You have to accept things as they are and 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 adjust yourself. Yes. But, no. but, I, but I have a. Yeah, go ahead. Again, that doesn't mean. That your finger's bleeding, you can't put on a band-aid. Right. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm cooking. This happened to me the other day. I was cooking and I cut my finger. Uh, it doesn't mean I bleed all over the boga. And it's just like, well, 
I'm not going to fix this. <laughs> That's not what it means. But it means that whether I adjust circumstances or not, the main thing that I've adjusted is my consciousness. And whether or not I'm able to adjust circumstances and whether or not adjusting circumstances helps things, my consciousness is always fixed on Krishna. And my reason for adjusting circumstances is as part of my service. Or I, I may know that, you know, I make an effort to make to try to adjust circumstances so that it's favorable for bhakti, accepting what's favorable for bhakti. You know, maybe like like a few weeks ago I moved some furniture around in this room and it was it was a much more favorable situation for having guests come over. That I moved like the seating arrangement so it would facilitate guests better. Now you know, you, it's not that you can't do that, but that's not the source of your happiness. <laughs> that's, that's not, and we're never going to be able to adjust the material circumstances perfectly for our happiness. You know, it's just not going to happen. You mentioned there was a, uh, a talk by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati going beyond gratitude. Did you? Expand on that after that about uh, changing no, it consciousness. Was, uh, let's see if I can find it. It's one of those things that really confused me when I read it. Like a number of Shila Bhakti Sinanta's really heavy statements about things. Um, so let's see if I can easily find it. But he was he was making this statement where he was just like criticizing gratitude, and I'm like, whoa. But he wasn't, he wasn't saying, don't be grateful. He was saying, don't end there. Um, no, I can't find it easily. Sorry. Uh, you know, that if, if our... He was talking about worshipping the Lord and being motivated by gratitude to worship the Lord and that it was still very me-centered. You know, it's like saying, go beyond suffering. Go beyond uh, mundane charity and mundane compassion. And neophytes will interpret those things as, you know, don't have mundane compassion, don't be grateful. <laughs> you know, like, no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying don't end there. Don't think it's your goal. Don't don't stop at swarga. Don't get off the bus at swarga. I, I can't find it. Sorry. No problem. Anybody else? Well, perfect. It's time to end. So, Shula Prabhupada, Ki Jai. Okay, thank you. Thank you.